I love that message. And a mm-hmm. lot of what you said, the people who are giving you pushback, it seems like they're almost contradicting themselves because they told you previously, they talk about accountability and stuff. That's exactly what it sounds like you're saying too. So I don't see where they try to put you on an island and make it seem like you're just so, your ideas are so um, whimsical or out of this world. I did want to talk about something. You talk about $60,000 minimum for a teacher in the state of Tennessee, right? Could you talk a little bit more about your education plan? Yeah, absolutely. First off, uh, the first thing I want to say about education is that I don't like the way we're doing education. We're doing like a lottery draft pick now. Uh, Children (laughs) are being children. You know, that's what it is. It's like a lottery draft pick. I swear, it's like the number one pick of the the group is, you know what I'm saying? And it's not right. Uh, Because here's my thing about education. Uh, Number one is that children are not a lottery draft pick. Let me explain something about me. Because I do believe that's an advantage I have as an activist, as a human rights fighter, and as a human rights servant. I serve human rights with my nonprofits all day, every day, 365 days, seven days a week of my life for the last seven to 10 years now. Um, And so to me, when I make a decision, my decisions are always based off of who will be the greatest harm. Not who's the greatest beneficiary, who's the greatest harm. And with our current style of education, especially Tennessee, like Tennessee gives us personal spot for this particular matter because we're trying <laughs> to do crazy things in education. And what I'm concerned with is our state legislator and the current incumbent are not acknowledging the fact that you are sacrificing children. That's the sacrificial lamb. The children are sacrificed. And so mm-hmm. to me, why are we talking about, oh, we're going to start this charter school over here, or we're going to start that trade school over there, or we're going to bring this apprenticeship over here? No, wrong answer already. Because every child deserves accessibility to quality, high-quality education. And I'm going to tell you why I'm like that about education, especially for our children, because here's why, Kiko. They're the future. They're going to be the governor one day. They're going to be the state legislators one day. Mm-hmm. They're going to be the nonprofit uh, directors and founders one day. They're going to be the corporate CEOs and small business owners. And if we don't prepare them appropriately with the right tools, because we were treating their education as if it was an optional program or a lottery pick, then this is what we're going to get. We're going to continue to be in this rut that we're trapped in a cycle right now because we're refusing to tell the truth to our children and we're refusing to give them all the accessibility, academia, success tools and keys to achieve their dream. So Mm -hmm. in my program, Tennessee, every school, every school, I don't care if it's private, I don't care if it's public, I don't care if it's charter, every school will have STEM program, apprenticeship program, and trade school program. Because again, this is not about me and you, the adults. It's about our children. And I want every child to be able to say whatever they want to be, they have it right there at their school or they have access to it through the school because school to me is a wraparound care system. It's not uh, a pre-school pipeline. It's not supposed to be doing that. It's supposed to be a wraparound care mm-hmm. center that caters strictly to education, empowerment, and success of our children and not about, like I said, criminalizing our children as they walk through, these do- uh, walk through those doors. As well as it should be the number one spot so for supportive care of our our struggling families in, in need uh, 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 population in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and in our cities and counties around the state. So that's the first one I want to put out there. I am not going to sacrifice our children for personal wealth and personal uh, uh, accumulation of income because people are not considering our children as a sacrificial lamb. So that's my first part. I want to get that out mm-hmm. up front. Every school, 
every school will have apprenticeship, STEM, and uh, trade schools available in it. Public or private? Public, private, I don't care, Mm -hmm. because the children deserve that. The choice Mm -hmm. program to me is, what school do you want your kid to go to, Fred? Oh, no doubt, yeah. Because the schools all have the same thing now. It's not about, oh, I'm picking, because currently what we're doing, that's how we're doing it right now. Choice school actually right now is, I pick this school because they got this, this, and this, versus this school doesn't have this. this which is honestly, a, which is a form of privatization. Yes, mm-hmm. it is. It is. But that's the point. We got to stop that because children mm-hmm. are really the final sacrifice of it all. It's not right for me to tell a little girl who wants to be an astronaut that unfortunately that dream is going to be a little more challenging for you to achieve because we're not going to put the uh, apprenticeship program or the or the uh, uh, the uh, STEM programming into your school so you can start to do that today. That's mm-hmm. not right. And it's not, it's, it's not any more right for me to tell a little boy who wants to be an astronaut, oh, well, you should go to this school because that's everything they got. And guess what? We can help you get in there. No, that has to stop. Our education is not a lottery draft of our children's future. We have to stop doing that. So that's a big one for me. Now, the second one is the payroll. As we were talking earlier, I want to highlight some continued misappropriation of spending. I find it, here's one of the things that when people be like, we don't, again, we don't have the money to pay the teachers. Lie. I'm that's a lie. I was about, I was going to, I was going to say something, but it sounds like you're going to do it about the, the money not being there. <laughs> I'm in here. Go ahead. That's a lie too. Because one of the things I want to highlight is how we are bloated spending in certain payrolls of education and others we are not. And here's the big one for me. I find it disturbing when school administrators, so you're not saying school board or your Davidson County Metro school board administrator. I find it highly disturbing that their incomes are at three hundred thousand dollars or more. Or are you serious? You can't make this up. That Look is it up. crazy. I looked at the number. I looked at the data. We've already pulled the data. We looked at it. And so to me, something's wrong here. Why is a school administrator making $300,000 a year again of taxpayer dollars? Because this is a government in position. This is a government employee position. Why are you making $300,000 a year as governor? I don't even make that. Governor makes barely at $200,000 a year. So you literally make a whole $100,000 more than me, and I run the whole state, and you down here watching over one little county school, uh, school, school system or on my behalf. Why are you making that much money? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the first things I want to start at. I want to go through and cut all this ridiculous, bloated payroll we're spending in a school administrative roles. Because that's mm-hmm. the thing about administrative. You're in the office all day. These teachers are in that classroom mm-hmm. all day long with those children, trying their best to teach and educate and get the necessary uh, uh, understandings and truth to the children. So again, they are better prepared as adults to do things better than what we are doing right now. Mm-hmm. So that's the big one for me. We got to cut all the unnecessary spending in payroll. So once we cut those bloated payrolls and get it more down to what I think is appropriate, more around the $90,000, $100,000 range, because you are still an administrator. You do have uh, so many XYZ employees under you. So it is a high paying management role. That's the appropriate title that it should really be considered. And so to me, what is the appropriate pay for my highest managerial role? Well, to me, that's a level wage rate. Again, a level income rate. Again, it's not a bloated rate. I'm not patting you in the back because you want to, or you got chose or selected or, or voted as my uh, administrator. I'm giving you again, what is necessary income for your job title and your role. Mm-hmm. And also paying you for the frustrations and the aggravations and other things you got to deal with. Because again, I'm not about to pull up at Davidson Metro School Board every time there's a problem. <laughs> no, you're going to figure that out on your own because I pay you to figure that out on your own. Exactly. But 
this is income that we could then, as I've talked about the model with the owner, this is basically what I'm talking about. Cut the unnecessary spending in these administrative uh, 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 yearly annual income. Take that first part there with just that funding. How many teachers can we pay $60,000 a year once we collect across 95 counties of 95 district uh, uh, school board districts and, and take that ad additional surplus funding uh, that, that we collected from those bloated payrolls and now redistribute that back out? I want to say at least probably a third to a fourth of our teachers can be paid off real just off of the bloated payroll bu uh, budget cut from the get-go. Uh, then the second factor is, again, as we already spoke, we have a $52 billion budget. We mm -hmm. have the money. Let me tell you something about spending. So let me give you some more numbers. In 2000 and what's this, 2022? So 2021, just last year, we spent as a state budget $18,000 in charter and private education. This year, guess how much money we spent this year? And this is how I know we got money to pay teachers. We spent $28 million this year in charter and private education. Mm -hmm. So, hmm, what are we doing with the money? And what we know we're not doing with the money is paying our teachers. So if you are willing to allot $28 plus million just for some charter model that comes from Bill Gates, that's what we ain't talked about yet either, that TISA is a Bill Gates model of education. Oh, yeah. And we already know <laughs> that's a privatization of education coming down the pipeline. But mm -hmm. if we could take that same money to try to set up privatization of our education, then that's the same money that technically, before we privatize education, we need to pay our teachers First, we need to make sure our classrooms are adequately resourced and supplied first. We need to make sure our lunch ladies are paid a little wage first. We need to make sure our janitorial sanitation workers are paid first. See, that's the thing. We're not taking, again, we're sacrificing people before we really cover, uh, we sacrifice people for the corporate capitalistic agenda versus taking care of the people first and do whatever's left over. Capitalism can do whatever. Well, see, that's, that's the ideological divide. See, our, our approach is is bottom up, but see, they don't see it that way. They they want to trickle it down, and it and, don't work. It, it don't and, work. And, but see, they never really they never admit they never admit that it doesn't work. But that's the excuse that they use. And so, what you're saying is empowering people, the common person, and you would think that that's what the majority of people want. I mean, the statistic you just read: ninety four percent of Tennesseans make less than two hundred thousand dollars a year. So that yeah. so we fall under that category. So that means that only a handful right. of people are actually rich, quote unquote. Right, it is. It is a handful. Literally, it's just a handful. That it, I mean, one percent <laughs> to the ninety-nine percent is just a handful of mm -hmm. people. Like literally, all the wealthy people know each other because that's how small the circle really is. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so so that's 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 uh, that's one of the models that we would bid for our sixty k a year income for our teachers, and more importantly, they deserve it. At the end of the day, this is still a job that requires a degree. As a person who has been through college and, and you as an educator yourself and have a degree, as we already know, a lot of jobs today only want to pay bachelor degree-based people $12 an hour starting. Mm. Wow, I pay $40,000 for education, and you're telling me now you're not even going to help me cover the cost of my student loan payment every month. Exactly. To me, that's an insult because it's like, why do we in this country propagate uh, higher education, higher education, if at the end of the day, higher education really is just a piece of paper because you're not going to pay me the rate that I earn. You're not going to give me the benefits that I earn. And you're not going to give me even the resource accessibility I need to be successful at the job you're giving me now to earn the income to cover the cost of, of my education expense that I just invested in myself. And so to me, that's something wrong with that model, too. 
So yes, I'm all about paying uh, people what I feel like is truly deserved. If you put in the work, you deserve the money. Plain mm-hmm. and simple. We go to work. People don't go to work because they love work. People go to work because it's about earning income to suffice their needs at the end of the day. Because trust and believe, if people didn't have to work, they wouldn't. And honestly, there's something wrong with that? No, I don't think so. But I think if people didn't work, we would have more time to take care of things like our ozone and our energy issues if we had mm. time to focus on it. Uh, I think we would have better politicians and better government and municipal power bodies if we had time to pay attention to who we are putting in office in the first place. I think that if you if you took care of people's needs, it would greater heighten their awareness on a lot of things and a lot of other issues that impact our lives. But again, if I keep you work burdened, enslaved and in poverty of, 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 of uh, labor wages, slave labor wages and those types of things and barely have time to look up because you're always worried about the KUB or your light bill that's on your table instead, <laughs> yeah. obviously these other things go unseen or untalked about because you're too focused on just trying to make kids meet right now. And so again, something's wrong to, with, in my opinion, when teachers are not making substantial income to afford their needs of their home but more importantly they are one of the first true of of uh introductions into the human and adult world for children because they're the first ones to tell your child this is how we do certain things uh and and one of the other things i want to highlight one of the reasons why i'm so big on bringing in stem apprenticeships and trade school programs because i want to get away from programming in school period I want school to be more like our Asian counterparts. I know we've done research on the Asian in China, how they do education. But the first 10 years of education in China is strictly about a child learning who they are, which I also call really mental and emotional competencies, what they're really practicing. Mm-hmm. Your child is spending, their children first spending out when people in America say, learn how to control your emotions. The problem in America is that we've never learned that though. No one ever taught us how to control our emotions because most of our emotions uh, response to things is based out of fear or out of reaction to something in which I.E. normally leads to some type of violent encounter. So America has never practiced emotional, mental competency, <laughs> no. really, ever. I don't recall getting any. Do you recall getting any? I think the closest thing I can think of that I ever had an experience of of emotional and mental competency training in school would be tag, talented and gifted. Remember tag? We got to go make those origami shapes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But but it was different. It was a slow down space. It was. It, it, to me, that's the only time I can recall ever having emotional mental competency. But even then, it was only the special students, meaning you had to be a high scoring academic student to get access to it. And that's a problem, right? Because why wouldn't all the kids give that? All children need that mental emotional competency space and something different other than the general curriculum that they were getting. They, we all deserve to make origami shapes, not just a few of us. But again, that it all extends back to the capitalistic system where you're taught to be mechanical, you're taught to be a machine, you produce, produce, produce for everyone else. You produce, 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 but it's not about your emotional state. It's not about learning about different cultures, being more global. It's what? all about producing more and more and more and more capital and just expanding that. But you're not growing personally. The businesses are growing what? around you now. And so, no, I totally what? get where you're coming from. I want to talk about a couple of other arenas extending on education. I've made the case on several podcasts about the idea of cannabis, legalization of cannabis, and how yeah. this is not this is not just a plant. This is not um, only a scientific issue. We know the benefits scientifically of cannabis, but they keep saying over and over, we need commissions, we need to study it. And I'm saying to myself, how, how long do you need to study something? We, a lot of people are smoking marijuana 
recreationally or for the HIV or for their cancer or for, for their mental health illnesses. It has a lot of different benefits. Me personally, I wouldn't have finished my PhD if I didn't start taking edibles at the end of my PhD program. It actually made me finish my PhD program. And I can honestly say that because I had depression during my, my whole program. And I would I wish I would have known about this earlier in the process and I may have finished school a lot earlier, but it has a lot of different scientific um, mental health benefits. And also when you talk about the criminal justice system, the war on drugs, I could see you being the governor of Tennessee, really changing the state of Tennessee for the better. When you talk about the green economy, decriminalizing, not only decriminalizing, but getting rid of the schedule one of marijuana, mm-hmm. making it completely legal, helping mm-hmm. the economy. Could you speak to kind of like how marijuana is not just a single issue, but how it branches off into different avenues for people? Right, right. I want to add one closing thought to our education piece before we go. Mm-hmm. But what I was saying about the teachers in programming education to move away from that, uh, as you know, as an educator, many teachers tell you, you kind of already hit it, but many teachers say that they're limited and expanding our children's education because of the programming model, as you said, which is preparing our children really just to join the capitalistic industry. So that's the other piece I want to add about program is that I want to expand program outside of traditional norms because even educators will admit our traditional norms are not meeting our children's educational needs. So that's that. Now, cannabis, yes. So uh, three things behind cannabis uh, that I will start with, my bullet points, I've, I've been trained by my team, bullet points first. Then <laughs> so uh, number one, there are three top reasons why I want to uh, legalize cannabis and you already hit them, but I'm gonna highlight them. Number one, yes, cannabis is a plant. It is stupid for people who are selling, growing, using, smoking plants to be sitting in jail with murderers and rapists. It really just does not add up, it makes zero sense. Number two, it is economical advantages. Absolutely. As we are watching fellow states around the country, Colorado, Arizona, Oregon, you name it, we have seen great economical benefit to them moving to a full-scale legalization of what I'm talking about on my platform, full legalization, whether you regulationally or medicinally use it, it's just there. You can use it now. Uh, And we've seen the full-scale benefits of those types of state uh, budgeting revenues they've been able to bring in and been able to better use that funding to support their, their states and their people's needs. Uh, and then the third one is what you hit on, the criminalization factor. Absolutely. We have too many people in jail right now just for marijuana. And to me, that's unnecessary space in, in jail and, and taxpayers' money right now that's paying to take care of someone who honestly should be at home in the first place. Uh, so those are the three reasons behind my, criminal, my um, full legalization package of cannabis. Now, let's unpack this. Right. So um, one of the things I had learned or I've been learning uh, as you know, I'm in East Tennessee, which is Appalachia area. And as we know, uh, Appalachia area was hit very hard by the opioid pandemic, the meth pandemic, some of these pandemics. Now, don't be twisted. Tennessee across the state had an issue with this. But we saw in the, in the Appalachia spaces particularly quite an increase or a spike to the users and, and the people who were showing, uh, uh, being reported uh, through whether the jail or through medical uh, uh, professionals a report of these users being heavily based in the Appalachian community. Now, here's a ticket to this, Kiko. In our statewide tour, because I started in the east, I'm coming uh, middle and west, uh, starting in the end, of, basically end of this month, on to the rest of the season till November. Uh, but one of the things that we were learning uh, while we were door knocking and visiting in, with the counties in, in Appalachia, East Tennessee area, is that cannabis was the counter drug for the addiction. 
I mm-hmm. cannot name the people. I promise you, people from elderly people. I'm talking about elderly people, like 60, 70, 80 year old people, all the way, of course, to the young folks in our age group, and et cetera. But all of them, personal story. I literally have had personal story that people told me I've been seven years clean and it was weed that did it for me. That's how I got clean, man. The weed took away the drive, the, the, mm-hmm. the you know, the, the, the desire for it, you know, just like, and then even them being able to admit how they were able to get back into reproductive lives. Like one of the guys that told me his, opioid drug addiction story he had been used he had been clean for seven years off of opioid all he did was smoke weed and he's actually a member of the uh the iron workers union uh up there in uh, morgan county that's where that visit was it was morgan county but that that personal story then you know we went and visited claiborne county and an elderly lady in her 60s like 60 60 70 era asked me directly are you gonna legalize cannabis and i was like absolutely mm-hmm. ma'am and she was like exactly and then she told me her personal stories of her being addicted to opioids and her children being addicted to opioids and cannabis was the answer to that and so what i have heard personal stories of is that when you um make a drug or make a plant because i'm not calling drugs not a drug it's a plant when you make a plant that has the types of medical well-known medical benefits uh that we are seeing uh not just in our healthcare but even in our drug addiction space and you're not making it legal it's not a then you know at this point when we hear these elected officials and these uh government bodies talk about how they want to help the drug pandemic and the and help folks who struggle with addiction, that's not a true statement. Because if you were serious about that, you would have already legalized cannabis at this point because cannabis is a a clear-cut personal testimony of the people who are dealing with this. So this is a frontline story. This is not me and you guessing. This is people telling us who live this life, have this experience, that cannabis was the answer to their recovery. Then why are you not legalizing at this point? And Mm -hmm. as we are expressed, we know that one of the top ways of getting people locked up is cannabis. Because, you know, we have, you know, this has been an issue in Supreme Court. Talk about Supreme Court. Let's talk about it. How Supreme Court had to say, look, because you smell uh, older is not a deemable, permissible grounds of, of probable cause to be all up in somebody's car, tearing it apart and looking for anything you can to criminalize the stop now so you can arrest this person for drug use and addiction. Mm-hmm. That is one of the things that we saw the Supreme Court say out loud. You can't keep doing it. As we have now seen. In the state of Tennessee, for example, we have a form of legalization, but it's not full legalization because mm-hmm. it's still CBD based. It's still controlling the uh, level or ranges of THC present. Uh, and more importantly, as we know, strands of THC or strands of cannabis have various THC levels that serve various different needs. And so what you may smoke a certain strand and a certain concentration of THC and does great for you may not be the same for me. I might need a whole different type of plant with a whole mm-hmm. different type of strand and concentration. So what we are seeing, what we already been talking about, we're seeing a way of, again, trying to clamp down, control, and generalize across the board what is uh, uh, cannabis for everybody. When cannabis is a plant that kind of serves everybody, but in different ways. In different ways. Uh, and, so, and so for me, yes, we know we can save money in our prison, in our in our incarceration rates, we can probably, I would will bet, based off of just some of the data, we've seen it places like Oregon, Colorado, and Arizona particularly, who are some of the newer states who legalize uh, cannabis for scale. But what I've been paying attention to is trends. One of the trends that stick out to me the most is like a space like in Arizona, well, not as long because they just got started, but more of Colorado and Oregon, I think are really good models for people to look at when you look at cannabis conversation and legalization of it, is that in both of these states, 
they both saw at least a 20% increase in crime period in their states. And more importantly, in their incarceration rate, they saw more like a over, over, roughly about over a 30% drop in incarceration rate. Mm -hmm. So what do we see happening? One, cannabis stopped being illegal. So traffic stops now that may have smelled like weed or whatever are no longer deemed for a, a purpose of arrest. The second thing we saw also was that, as we already know, uh, something that if you look at areas like uh, 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 Poland and Finland areas where they kind of made full legalization of drugs, period, across the Portugal board, too. Is that, yeah, it's Portugal, exactly. Mm -hmm. What you see is that when you tell somebody, all suddenly you can do this and, it, and it, you, it's legal now, people seem to lose interest really fast, don't they? Like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to do it no more. Now it's not fun. Right, the fun is gone out of it, right? The fun was, the thrill was getting the drug, using it, and then not getting caught. Now you can use them, they're not, when there's no uh, uh, fear to what's going to happen, people lose interest in it all suddenly. And so it's like, it's a win-win. It's a you're winning because you're reducing the incarceration rate. You're winning because you're reducing the crime violent rate. You're winning because you're reducing uh, the, uh, the opioid and drug addiction rate. It's like, why, again, as a political leader who has the authority and ability to, to make this a full-scale legalization uh, uh, therapy. It can become even medical use as a combat veteran with PTSD, mental health illness. As we know, veterans are advocating for legalization of cannabis because on the federal level, because that's what we fall under as veterans, is that they still haven't made it legal. And so you mm. can lose your benefits for, for using cannabis if you are a veteran. But the problem with that is that it is a veterans are telling the VA this helps us, not your uh, uh, your natural mental health cocktail that makes me more addicted to opioids. So that's what we don't talk about either. Is how when we do treat opioid people, we're treating with another opioid. So all you did was change the prescription. So now instead of being uh, addicted to uh, Prozac, now I'm addicted to Zenloft Zen or something else because it's still an opioid. So you didn't cancel out the opioid in my system. You just introduced me to a new one and continue my addiction. Which we already know that's a uh, that's a big pharmaceutical method to keep you buying into their industry. And that's and exactly, course, and that's why I think a lot of that has to do with the marijuana resistance. It has nothing mm -hmm. to do with because Before. most people, most people that I know, I don't care how religious they are, how quiet they are, how loud they are. Most people have smoked a joint in their life if they're yeah. 40, 50 years old. I mean, let's just be yeah. real. And it's just, I don't, these people try to pretend that they're these different kinds of people. And I'm saying to myself, it's weed. Come on. It's, it's like you smoke cigarettes. Are you kidding me? Right. And that you like, right. like, if you want to look at it, that's another factor. Let's talk about how many deaths weed is called. Let's talk about how many heart attacks weed is called. Let's talk about how much cancer weed is called, which we know it doesn't cause cancer, but it's a counter treatment for cancer. Mm -hmm. So let's really talk about what is legal that is, if not, if just as dead, if not more deadly than weed that you can't buy right now. But at the same time, you can't use this plant that heals you. So what is the message that we're really sending out? Oh, we want mm -hmm. you to kill yourself, not heal yourself. So mm -hmm. yeah, so, so that's just some of the concepts around cannabis for me. Like I said, I want to legalize it because, again, like you said, it's stupid. It's, it's a plant. No need for it to be illegal. Uh, there's definitely economic gain for us as a statewide for our revenue needs and our budget needs. Uh, and the third factor is we're addressing many issues in criminalization as far as with the addiction, our jail and, and our jail rate, our lockup rate, uh, and as well as the fact again. Our police officers need to be focused on real crime, not on smelling weed odors in, in people's cars. For sure. Um, before I talk a little bit about the Poor People campaign, because I don't know exactly what that is. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I've seen it on your site quite a bit, and I've heard you mention mm -hmm. it a lot. Mm -hmm. What exactly um, is your view about the whole idea of police? Because 
I know I saw in your campaign about where you don't believe in police being in the schools. And I don't, I don't need, I don't see the point of having mm-hmm. police in the schools because when mm-hmm. me and you were growing up, I don't remember that ever have been a situation. We didn't have that. That yeah, was never did. a thing. I don't know when that happened, the implementation of police in the schools, but how do we allocate all that unnecessary money going to the police department into other areas that we've talked about infrastructure, education, um, making a green economy or making it more viable for us. Uh, how do we, how do we go about that with the police? Like, do you think you're going to get resistance from possible voters when you talk about, can you explain that to people that you're not trying to abolish the police necessarily? Like I'll, I'll let you say it more to me. What's your view? Yeah. On that? Well, you want to talk about public safety now. Okay, let's jump into public safety. <laughs> yeah. uh, so as we already know, police budgets around the country, no matter what city or state you're in, those are normally some of the most bloated, highly funded taxpayer budget line items in our country, period, across the, across the state, across the counties. Like I said, even we saw recently Joe Biden, no more money for police. You see what I'm saying? So, and again, <laughs> look at our DOD, look at our Department of Defense funding. Again, we are definitely heavily invested as taxpayers into the police state of our country. We're actually into that. Um, And so to me, when we talk about police, we have to talk about, unfortunately, the harsh truth of police. We have to do that because we, America has done a great job at putting police in this hero pedestal narrative. But the truth is, for a lot of Americans, police are a America's worst nightmare, true encounter. And it, it really is that. As we've now seen as uh, I think Will Smith, I know some people feel like about Will Smith, but Will Smith has said some real things. And one of the things he said I agree with was that uh, police officers have always been, it's, it's not that police officers are more brutal, more violent, it's that we have more technology to show these violent and brutal encounters. It was mm-hmm. always there. Again, let's talk about police. We'll start where it started at. Where did police come from? How did we get here? Slave catchers. That's where they started at. Mm-hmm. They were slave patrollers. Mm-hmm. And then when we moved from slavery being, uh, or the Emancipation Proclamation, Juneteenth, all that happened, now we got to retitle these people because we don't want to get rid of them because, quote, unquote, what people need to understand, America's always been a giant plantation. We never left slavery. We just decriminalized <laughs> yeah, right. it. We named it. We phased <laughs> it. We masked on top of it. But we honestly never left a plantation in America. And so that's what you see with the police. It started in the slavery area, but it has modernized itself right along with America's plantation uh, uh, concept because that is what they have always used as quote unquote the control. Remember in segregation, it was uh, uh, what was it, Jim Crow now, Jim Crow forever. And when John F. Kingdom said, oh, no, it's over with for real. Everybody can get the same lunch counter. What did you hear next? Law and order sort of been the. Oh, of course. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Segregation and slavery at the same time. It's just, again, new language same concept. Um, So what we have in our police departments, we never cleaned it up. No one never, what J.F. Kennedy didn't do, that's where he messed up at. Yeah, you did a great job of saying, okay, yeah, it it doesn't make any sense for a black person to go to the back of the door when everybody's going to the front. No, everybody goes to the front. But what he also didn't, what he forgot to do, him and his brother Robert, was to say the police departments, 
Y'all got to clean y'all act up now, too. Now, we got to go through every police department in America so we can filter out these race soldiers because we know Klan members were heavily involved in what? The police department. Mm -hmm. Before it was the Klan, who was before that? The Blue Bloods. Remember the Irish folks? They filtered into it. And the agenda mm -hmm. was always the same. Brutalize, beat people up, especially black people, poor people, or anyone that the rich guys that pay them tell them, go get them people. That's what they always have been. They are a hired gang. And people don't like to say that, but it is. Just like when people say, well, you're the military. Guess what? The military is a hired gang. It's a more specialized gang. Actually, it's a level up. It's the gang that comes in with a gang on the ground, can't handle it. We call them the big dog gang. Matter of fact, call them the military the mafia. Basically, like, when the gang that work with the mafia can't handle it, that's when the mafia really step in. That's when the boss comes in and say, okay, I got to deal with this now. That's what the military is. And so the issue that I have with police is that Again, what we are been talking about, accountability. Mm -hmm. One, we need to end uh, police immunity laws. And here's what I say about police immunity laws. As a person who's been in combat, as a veteran, as a, as a person who had to live under DOD and the uh, Constitution and other things of, of, our, of, our, of our ranks, is that we had escalation of force. We had rules of engagement. We had our, uh, 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 what is it, our JAG? You know, we had a lot of clauses to us. So in the military, even in the war, you couldn't just run out there and just start shooting your gun off. That would be absolutely Fort Lindenburg making Big Rock, Little Rock status immediately by a court martial because that's a violation of our rules of, of, our, of our handguns, of our, of our, of our weaponry. Expression force is pretty simple. I can't be no more dangerous to you than you are to me. So if mm -hmm. you have a knife, I can't pull out a gun. If you got a gun, then I can match a gun. Or I can pull out a knife. I can pull out mace. But that's the point. I cannot be any more of a deadly force to you than you are to me. That's escalation of force. Rules of engagement. Now, what a lot of people don't know, and if you talk to a veteran, they'll tell you, here's what rules of engagement state. Rules of engagement says that before I shoot my gun back at you, meaning a round downfield, in my personal defense or my comrades defense, you get a free shot at me first. You get to shoot a whole shot at me first before I can ever shoot back at you. And you know why they do that? Because you got to make sure, right? Just because you point a gun at me doesn't mean you're going to shoot it at me. Mm -hmm. Just because you point a knife doesn't mean you're going to stab or cut me with it either. Just because you open up a can of maize doesn't mean you're about to spray the whole room. So I actually have to wait for your action to say, when I did what I did, it was justified because you were the assailant. You were the attacker. You were the aggressor. And so if you pull your gun at but you don't shoot, there's no need for me to pull a gun out or do anything. Or for that matter, my engagement with you is not to kill you. It is to now figure out how we're going to take you down because you didn't actually use the gun to, quote, unquote, engage me. So that's the thing. Mm -hmm. And what we see in our police departments in America, you don't see any strictness to how they engage that gun. It's like Absolutely. the first thing they always go to. It's the first thing they go to. And even in the military, if there's a shot chart. In the military, you have a shot chart. In the military... My first three, two to three shots are warning shots. Let you know we are R2, and at this point, I am telling you to put your weapons of choice of defense down. Otherwise, this will escalate in my shooting. Once I give you three warning shots and you continue to shoot or whatever you're doing to engage us, I then get to give you what is called a flesh wound or a flesh shot. I mean, I have to shoot you in your foot or your leg. It's a shot below your knee, literally. And it's Not to kill you. Kill exactly. It doesn't kill mm -hmm. you. It just disables you. If mm -hmm. you continue, even if I shoot you in the foot, you continue to start keep, keep busting your gun. I get to move up a little higher. It's still not a kill shot. Now mm -hmm. I need to shoot you more like in your thigh area or something of that nature. Again, still not a kill shot. If you continue to shoot, now I get to make shot center masking up. And now this is where I'm approved to take a kill shot. Now think about how many rounds of, 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 of ammo you shot at me before I ever got to my kill shot. 
in American in American police departments, where do you see that at? Do you see them actually practice a disabled shot, warning shot? Mm-hmm. Or do you always see, always see a kill shot? How about the taser? What about the mace? What about the baton? How about the dog? You see what I'm saying? Like you have a lot of actually, in my opinion, police have more weapons than we do in the military, quote unquote, when it comes to disengaging stuff. In the, in the military, we've got a gun, some tank. We got we got stuff to take you out. But as far as when it comes to like human disengagement, the police have more tools for that than we do. And the fact mm-hmm. that the police officer's first initial response to someone with a gun is to pull out a gun and then not even confirm they got a gun or confirm they using the gun as a form of engagement for them, and they're just able to fire it off and be shot. And then the law, the constitution of this country, written in a bypass for that to say, oh. Well, he was working in line of duty. He had to make a drastic decision less than three seconds. And so, mm. therefore, he's excused for his actions. No, sir, because you are a grown man or woman, and y'all be killing children at this point. So I must believe as a grown man, as a grown woman, that this child is 9, 10, 11, or 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, as we know science, as we already spoke to, as I said, children's brains are not ready yet to make these rational decisions. But I'm supposed to believe this child is going to mm-hmm. respond more rationally in a very tense confrontational situation than your grown ass? Nah, I'm not <laughs> buying that. I'm not buying it. And mm-hmm. that's the way to excuse accountability of adults. So in my platform, we're going to restore accountability to adults. It's not about being a police officer. It's about you being an adult and you being accountable and responsible decisions you make in your line of work as an adult. You, you talked a lot then about, it's interesting, you mentioned qualified immunity, ending qualified immunity. I think it's very odd because you're a big proponent of unions, and I am too. It seems like the union leadership has weakened so much across our industries but the one industry where unions are very strong are in the police departments. FOP. And I know. do you notice how that is funny how they unionize when they see it convenient, but it's not to benefit us. It's actually harming us. It's the exact mm-hmm. opposite intended purpose. And that's going to, that's going to be a huge step moving forward in this country is ending qualified immunity. Even the libertarian party as a party as a whole is for ending qualified immunity, something that the quote unquote, the Democrats won't even bring up. They won't even touch it. Yeah, they won't even touch it. Which they is crazy it. because it goes into the whole defund the police conversation and stuff. And that's why I tell my friends, please don't get, get too proud of yourself as far as like your views, because you think you're on one side when you're really not on that side. There's a lot of nuance mm-hmm. to these issues. That's why it's good to sit down and talk to different kinds of people and realize what can we do together to, to advance causes. And this is one of those issues where I believe you can get a lot of support from um, libertarian minded people, not necessarily Democrats. You can get mm-hmm. a lot of support just from that issue. They talk about government. Okay. You don't want the government to be huge. How can this socialist promote something that's decreasing the size of government? Well, this is one of those issues where we're not trying to blow up the government. We're trying to make the government smaller in unnecessary areas. Right, so you can right. definitely, you can reach that message, I think, a lot, across a lot of different constituents. Right. And here's one of the other things I want to bring up, uh, because I have actually spoken with a few, few, and I say few, I'm talking about <laughs> a few, uh, police people, or I think one of one or two of the guys I spoke with is a member of the FOP, like a, a ranking member in the union itself. 
Uh, and, and the interesting factor is they don't necessarily disagree with me. They don't disagree with me about holding the adult population of the police department accountable for their actions. They're willing to admit that yes, some people be running around here and making some very foolish decisions and they got nothing to do with the police. It's a mindset of them as an adult. And then we know that, right? We know as adults, when you meet somebody that's 35 and they be acting like they're 20, you be like, yeah, you didn't grow up yet. You're minor, right? We know that, right? <laughs> uh, and so with that being said, though, yes, there's still pushback to immunity because they want to stand stronghold on, well, you have to make rational decisions in any given moment. Well, that's the problem because then when you tell me that I have to make a rational decision in any given moment, that speaks to me in my opinion to your trainer at this point. Why are you so anxious? Why are you so antsy? Why are you so hype? And as again, I'm speaking as someone who's been in combat. When we went into engagements into some of those spaces that we knew there was a possible confrontation, let me tell you something about me, Kiko. Calm. A lot of people's calm. You know why? It's like auto. Like the military is so great at training, it's like automatic. You don't feel hyped up. You don't feel anxiety in these moments. You feel, unfortunately, an awkward state of mm -hmm. calmness because you're like, whatever happens, your brains are programmed to respond one way or another. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that is the problem. And, and you know, this is why I tell people, if you're scared, you should not be a police officer. Because a police officer's job is scary. So if you're easily frightened, if you're easily afraid, if your anxiety approaches before anything happens, then this is not the line of work for you. And so mm -hmm. if you look at my policy, going back to some of my policy aspect, this is why I said we need to raise the age of the police department in hiring as 27 years old. You should not be able to come out of high school and be able to come into the police department because my granddaddy was a police chief in the 1970s mm -hmm. and be able to take a job even though you are absolutely unqualified, sir, because here, oh, ma'am, because here's why. You're 18 years old. What is your emotional competency level? Are you able to truly look at someone, determine what is a deemed as a person actively being a threat versus someone who's just minding their business, walking down a sidewalk and not engaging or doing anyone to anyone? Or more importantly, again, when something happens, because size, we know people grow, 18 to a 28-year-old is a different type of size ability too. So if you're a small person, are you always going to be grabbing your gun because the person you think is not about, oh, they're threatening me, oh, I'm small, so I feel threatened at this point. It's a difference. So mm -hmm. to me, that's why we have to increase the age limit because it's about mental capacity, it's about size and capability, and more importantly, actual life experiences to help shape in your, your encounters with people so you're not responding like a kid, you're responding like what? An adult. That's the biggest key. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is that if you look at my policies I talk about, I talk about having some educational requirements in this background. Again, an 18-year-old has no idea about policing, criminal justice laws, regulations, uh, uh, bill of rights, amendments. You don't have a background. And that's why you find, if you have looked at the a a ACLU, they did a study a while back and found out that roughly about 98% of the time when you have an encounter with a cop, he violates some form of your constitutional right mm. every single time. And you know why? Because they don't know. They don't know. So to me, you need to have some background in this. Again, this is why we should have apprenticeships in a uh, uh, trade school program, because guess what we get to bring in? We get to bring in cops into this now. You want to be a cop? Okay, I'm going to show you the life and day of a cop mm -hmm. kid if you really want to do it. That's why we need those programs in our school so that kids can see the careers you want to be, this is what it looks like. Uh, and that's an economical statement too for families, right? We talk about cost press. This is a way we save families a lot of money if kids are getting the opportunities through the school to have these insights for these careers. 
So to me, education should be here. You should know a little bit about the law. You should know a little bit about the Constitution. Same thing they did for some military. I know a lot about my amendment rights and my bill of rights. I've read the Constitution quite a few times, and I also know how to look through the Constitution. You know, it's like a, it's like a, a it's like a, 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 a dictionary. It's kind of designed in that method, right? Like you want to look at something, you look at the number, you go find it on the page, you look it up. So you know, we need if you're going to be in criminal justice or in the in the justice system period, you do need to have some type of understanding background to the knowledge base of what the criminal justice actually is in America and in your state and in your county and in your community. It is a must. You have to have the understanding. That's why I said you need to have a two-year or a four-year degree. I just say make it, you got mm-hmm. to call it a criminal justice degree. I'm telling you go two years to your local community, uh, uh, local community university, community school, uh, community college, and access uh, two years worth of criminal justice uh, 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 education materials and requirements from educators like yourself who have a greater understanding of what it is because your job is to teach it. You don't work with it, but it is your job to help people understand and educate themselves to what these philosophies, principles, and interpretations really mean. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if you come in at an older age with more maturity and understanding life experiences under your belt, also strapped with the knowledge base how much different do you think we would have in police interactions with the public, period? Whether you like me or not, it's going to be a different encounter, period, because your brain is operating under another level of what? Understanding. So what did I just do for you? I elevated your mindset to make you a better employee for your job. That's why mm-hmm. also, as well, I think it's important if you look at my philosophies. Let me tell you something off real. My philosophies around public safety are directly tied to my military background. So I want people to understand it. What I am giving you is some of the things that are required in the military. So it's not like I just, oh, come kind of woke up, like you said, as a socialist, you thought, I'm never going to go after the police or the, as they yell, the police hater. No. Mm-hmm. I said, I also have a background in this work. And what we did in the military is way more functional and more uh, 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 successful in its approach and in, in the encounter and practice because, again, the military spends a lot of time doing what I'm talking about doing, which is training and educating your role. So you understand that when they say I'm court-martialing you, you already know before you get court-martialed exactly why you're being court-martialed because you know the rules and regulations up front. So when I say, oh, keep up, we got a problem. I'm going to go and bring you in here. We're about to probably have a write-up or even whatever the, the uh, reprimand is for your actions. Keep going and walking around like, man, I don't know what's going on. Keep going, man. I knew that wasn't going to slide because I already knew you can't do that in the first place. Exactly. Uh, that's why I require a mental health and physical evaluation twice a year. Because, again, okay. at the end of the day, you're still a human being. Kiko, you're still a human being, right? So if Kiko at home is having problems with his wife and his children, and now he got to come on this clock and clock in for work, because that's the thing that people can't forget. Cops is just an employment status. You don't have to be a cop. You can quit tomorrow and go work at the local uh, manufacturing plant if you wanted to. It's not a requirement to be here. So if Kiko got issues at home with his family, now he got to come into his job, which is a customer service job. Really, if you think about it, you got to deal with people all day long and their issues and their needs. And his job is to figure out how to serve those to the best of his ability of his department resources and funding. Then Kiko's going to do what? He's going to come in, into work, probably cussing out his coworkers, going down the street, <laughs> cussing out people left and right. And the kicker is Kiko's not mad at his coworkers or someone in the street. He's mad at his wife because she's trying to figure out why he thought it was appropriate to spend some money that they had in their savings account on a jet ski this summer instead of spending it maybe on the family vacation. That's what's bothering Kiko. But Kiko won't tell us that. So I got to put Kiko on evaluation and let him tell the doctor that. The doctor's like, Kiko, you know, 
I saw you six months ago. You were in great mood and these and that and the third, but I'm looking at your chart. And I'm looking at you today and I'm seeing there's some things that's different here. Let's unpack mm -hmm. this. What, what's wrong? What's wrong? Because we want you to be the best officer in the street possible. And we can't have the best officer in the street if your mind is not right, if your body is not physically healthy and well, if your health care insurance mm -hmm. is not meeting the needs of your current medical condition, then Kiko's not fit for, for work today and he's definitely not fit to encounter people in our streets. So that's one of the other requirements I have. Uh, and then, of course, the last one is yes. As we talked about earlier, we know police budgeting is way over bloated. For mm -hmm. example, let me give you an example. In my city, my local police department has a line item where they spend $300 million on unmarked cars. Now, Kiko, what my question is, why do you need $3 million worth of unmarked cars? Because one, Police job is not to ride around all day and try to catch people and trap people. <laughs> well, some their people make it different. <laughs> but their job, actually, their job, you read what an officer's actual job, I don't care what department you look at, one of the first things that's listed in the job description and the, under their, their ethos and their oaths that they take is that they are public servants. They are work for the public and for the community. That's their job. So mm -hmm. if I am in a situation that may not be criminal, maybe somebody just fell out on the ground and I don't know CPR. Now I need to find somebody to help me like quickly. Mm -hmm. And you're riding on an unmarked car. I don't know that the cops just rode past me that could have saved someone's life with CPR. Because again, when you're a cop, you get basic first aid training. You could have saved the life that day. But because your department was so much more worried about riding around trying to catch criminals than actually being a public servant to the community that they are being paid through taxpayer payroll in the first place, Someone died on the pavement when they could have got sliced in CPR because, again, you were more worried about being unmarked than actual marked. To me, that's a problem. When I see officers whose job assignments are really to serve the public, be more concerned about hiding from the public, that means you no longer work for the public now. You're working for another entity that does not serve, unfortunately, our public. So those are the things I'm talking about when I say let's cut out the budget because that same $3 million that we spent on unmarked cars, that's $3 million that can go to an alternative response program that's loaded with mental health therapists, uh, clinical specialists, social services folks, drug intervention professionals and experts that when we get a call in the homeless community that Constance is down there tripping out and we don't know what's wrong with her, instead of having a cop respond who we know not to the tent escalates, not de-escalate the situation, that's who comes now responding to that call is the new alternative response program who deals with those calls. Because again, we're asking, I want people to understand that, which is something that I know that fellow cops agree with me as well. We're asking a lot of the police. Let's just be honest, we are. We're asking them to be the uh, violence interrupters. We're asking them to be the guys who catch the bad mm -hmm. guys in the street. We're asking them to be mental health experts. We're asking them to be the first responders, 911, medical emergency assistance. We're asking a lot of them. So it's not fair either. They're not an all round once response to everything because some of these things are honestly outside of their career and their profession. Mm -hmm. To me, once again, use good common sense. And let's bring in people who do have these professions, who do have those degrees, who do have those educational backgrounds and trainings and vocational studies and certifications under the belt to deal with that. I really want police to focus on one thing and one thing only, gun violence, robbers, and rapists. That's all I want them to focus mm -hmm. on. Everything else, we're going to fund it towards something else that's under the expertise of people who also went to college, who also spent money on their investment of self, and then let them practice and use that training and knowledge to better do what? Support, upgrade, and uplift our communities. Well, it sounds like based on a lot of the stuff you said, and hopefully you can stay on for about 10 more minutes if possible, because I want yeah, to get a few, will. I want to get a couple of questions in 
um, from social media. And I had a, a question to myself. Uh, I love that. I, I was just thinking the solutions that you brought to the table today and the stuff we've talked about, you wouldn't have the need for many police. I mean, because if people were making their money, you know, people had their bag and everyone, you know, was able to have their family not split apart because of the drug war and all these other issues. It sounds like to me, there wouldn't be as much of a need for the police that are hiding in our neighborhoods disproportionately. And that's the funny thing about it. I have friends that come to me all the time and I don't want police in my neighborhood unless there's something going on, unless there's an emergency. But just the point of having patrols just every hour, just momentarily going around my block, it's like, that tells you there's no, we're wasting taxpayer money. And And they're looking for trouble at that point because like I said, you're trying to get someone for selling drugs on the street for real? Seriously? Like the drugs shouldn't be illegal anyway. And so again, it goes into all those things we talked about before is getting people to sort it, open their cells up to this has a consequence, that has a consequence. So maybe we need to change the system as a whole, look at it from different Mm -hmm. perspectives and not Mm -hmm. just have this tonal vision that a lot of these people go in with. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. because that tone of vision that they have presupposes that everything is fine and it's not fine everything no, is not. not okay and we've yeah. mentioned the the problems and the gaps in these um societal ills that we face i have right. i have this um particular comment that just they made me laugh i saw it pop up on your um facebook ad that you um bought this okay. person said socialism alert a vote for this crazy is a vote to put down our guns our bibles and our liberties how do you respond to these kind of people well that guy if you read the comment i actually did post my <laughs> campaign to his page I, co- I posted my campaign to his uh comment and i asked him on my campaign website or on any campaign material that i produce where did you see such statements i actually asked him directly if you notice he never responded back because there is no proof uh <laughs> what i would say to this is that again we're programmed people watch these these tv shows these news reports even reading it in the media again uh like i said before media is extremely biased now it's not a lot of truth coming out in media you have to be diligent and really doing research and even finding folks who really print the truth to know truth these days Mm -hmm. and so people are taking very inflammatory commentary and narratives and just absorbing it for some reason not questioning it actually eating it up and then regurgitating it back out in very fear-based, unknown, very uneducated uh, outbursts or spewing. Uh, and so to me, when I see someone make that type of comment, my first thought is that this person does not do research for self. This person is not investigating the information that they're even receiving for self. <laughs> and more importantly, unfortunately, as much as people want to act like they're not, you are part of the programming of our media and of our of our of our of our people that control media, basically. So our, our, our government, we know government controls the media. And so you are actually part of, not so the problem, but you're part of that 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 uh, droning that they've been able to do <laughs> on the human mindset to tell you anything and you just believe it. And then you become a puppet at this point because you're going to go back and just puppet it back out what they said. But again, when you hit them with, well, give me a factual evidence of such thing, they can't do it because mm-hmm. you were sitting alive from the get-go. 
Uh, so to me, when I get approached with those type of comments, I actually challenge them with proving it. Prove your statement. Like, okay, just like you asked me about things about poverty and, and, and uh, economics, I could give you facts, 94%, 6%, 30%, 20%. Really show me some data that supports your statement or show me written language where that was came out of my platform saying, this is what I believe in, this is what I'm trying to do. If you can't do that, then after, like I said, at the end of the day, I take it as a program drone speaking out loud uh, without any real background information to what they just said. Okay, so that... I won't call it a foolish comment because these people obviously have emotions and I don't know how politically inclined they are as far as, like, as far as like it's people. but it's like you yeah. said, whether it's negative or positive publicity is still publicity. And, right. and that's a good thing. You know, the fact that you're able to engage because of your experiences, you can engage with just about anyone ideologically mm-hmm. that doesn't affect mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you distinguish yourself from people who run as, as quote unquote Democrats? Because you are running as an independent. And so that's kind of goes to a point I was making earlier. I feel like a lot of people that I associate with, they just don't have the, I guess I won't say the fortitude, but they see the I next to the name of the candidate and they're more hesitant because they're more skeptical of that because they're so programmed to go in for the D or for the R. How do you sort of combat that mentality? And what have you seen so far when it comes to that? Like, oh, like, so what are you running as? Uh, Again, I I think how I want to unpackage this comment is that, number one, let me say something very quick. I want to say something very quick. In the state of Tennessee, there are 5.5 million registered voters. In the last election, only 3.5 million of those voters actually won. And the current incumbent actually won off of only 1.3 million votes total for his elected office. Mm-hmm. Let's run some numbers. Yeah, I'm running numbers for you. <laughs> so when I see that, no, so when I see that kind of data, um, it lets me know that almost a little under half of our state didn't say anything because one way or another, they felt like the candidate that were given to them was not a candidate for them in the first place. So mm-hmm. let's start there. The second thing is that. Um, I'm okay with not being everybody's candidate. I want to say that out loud. I'm actually okay for that because I'm not everybody's candidate. I know that about myself. I am not a Democrat. I am not a Republican. Because again, when it comes to what we said at the beginning of this conversation, when it comes to action, neither party is making action. I'll give you an example. Democrats and Republicans, but I'm going to speak more to the Dems, right? I'm going to speak to the Dems on this. Are you aware that when Roe versus Wade passed, there is an action even right now that the Congress, the basically our Congress, our, our, our 500 elected uh, employees is what I call them, our Congress and Senate, they have an ability to turn that decision over right now. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. It's not an amendment to the Constitution. <laughs> it's an amendment to the Constitution is what you're calling for. And there is a process. I'm not saying it's like, oh, overnight. It, it is a process to it, but there is an action they can take. And what I get frustrated with and why I said, oh, Democrats don't represent me. It's other things that Democrats have done that definitely represent me. But I was like, this was to me, if you are a Democrat, period, this should have been the one that broke your back. Because the Democrats did not get on TV and say, hey, America, we can solve this today. This is not the final decision. We can amend our Constitution right now to overturn this decision and make sure constitutionally, permanently for the rest of our lives and for the rest of the existence of our world, that women will have the right to their health care needs, regardless of who thinks whatever, because mm-hmm. that's not what it's about, about your health care needs. Did you ever see a Democrat do that? Of course no. not. <laughs> what would Joe Biden come on TV and say? 
America, when are we going to get it together? No, Joe Biden, we gave you the power of the pen. When are you going to use your pen to actually serve the needs of our people? And it's just like with the Democrats putting on the kids cough and taking a knee again. Why are you performing when I gave you the power to pin? Pick that pin up and write a damn law. Pick that pin <laughs> yeah, up definitely. and sign an executive order to do something. Mm -hmm. Don't sit there and put a performance on and kneel and talk about, oh, we stand with Black Lives Matter when Black people are still being killed. Jalen Walker and Randy Cox are two names that come to mind immediately. So, Nancy, y'all did all that performing, and only in the end, Black people are still being murdered in our streets. That's what I'm talking about. So that's why I said, if you are still running off of the red and blue model, you are archaic and outdated in your voting model because that's not getting the job done. And to me, that's what separates me from everybody because I'm not afraid to use the power of the pen. I'm not afraid if I can't get it done with the pen to come out loud to the public and say, this is what's going on back here. This is what they're doing right now. This is who's resisting the change that we need to see to fix this problem right now. And so voters, heads up, when the next election for this candidate comes up, we need to be doing everything in our power to get them out of the door. So people, and that's another thing I thought people, people understand. Yes, politics is a district and a county, and a city, and a state. But politics really is a collective nationwide issue. Because if one candidate that represents the Republican Party out of Colorado is a douchebag, don't you think he's probably linking up with fellow douchebags as well in, in the Republican Party? And now they're becoming this narrative, like Mitch McConnell comes to mind when I think about stuff like this. Like Mitch McConnell <laughs> is a representative of Kentucky, but he sure they have Trump and all kinds of other Republicans on his bandwagon for the things he did under the Trump administration. So you see how that works? Mm -hmm. So all of us who knew as voters that Mitch McConnell was a problem, we should have all been advocating to Kentucky, get him out of office now. Because if mm -hmm. people like him stay in office, it affects every last one of our lives while he is in office. It wasn't just a Kentucky problem, it was a nationwide problem. And mm -hmm. so to me, that's what separates me. I'm gonna continue to be an activist in my role because that's what I am. Like I had to tell one person who made a comment about me identifying uh, as a disabled black, uh, disabled black combat gay woman veteran. And was like, oh, oh, I was out for it until you, until you talked about your identity. Uh, uh, we should be about us. And I had to tell him, I said, no, sir. I said, I have to identify who I am because that's who I am. And that's been authentically true to who I am. I said, matter of mm -hmm. fact, presenting myself as anything else is really a lie, not just to you, but to myself. I said, so why would you as a voter want someone to lie to you about their identity, to sacrifice your comfort of me, then to tell you the truth of me and then let you deal with that, whether you accept it or reject it. I, it's not my job to make you accept or reject me. It's my job to be true to myself and true to you, who I am of myself, so that way you know transparently up front exactly what you're getting. And I said, see, that's the other problem we have in government. That's how we get these lesser than two evil candidates all the time in our, in our final ballots to select from, because people allow people to wear a mask. People allow people tell a lie. People allow people to be a pretender, a puppet, a fake of themselves, than the truth of themselves, and then we go select the less to the evil. Here's my problem with that, Chico. You still voted for evil. So what did you win? Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing. You didn't win anything. You just picked an evil person regardless of the fact. And, and so to mm -hmm. me, that's the problem. I'm going to always be truthful. I'm always going to be transparent. I'm not going to deny that I'm pro-black. I'm not going to deny I'm pro-woman. I'm not going to deny I'm pro-veteran. I'm not going to deny that I'm pro-human uh, rights. I'm not going to deny aspects of myself that are true to me because that's what I am as your candidate. That's what I am as your governor. I am going to be constant every and all aspects of it that I gave to you. And if you accept it, 
or you reject it. And that's mm-hmm. on you. But I gave you the true version of me and I can sleep easy at night whether win, lose, or draw because I know for a fact I did not lie about myself and I stay authentically true to myself, to me. i tell you what, I think that's a, an appropriate closing. I don't really have a whole lot of other questions because you kind of explain um, like your strategic angle and mm-hmm. and I was looking at just the 2018 gubernatorial 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 race with um Carl Dean and um Bill yeah. Lee and uh, like yeah. you said I think it was only 2.25 million votes total and yeah, I think low, you were saying that time. that yeah I think you said now it could be close to six million possible voters out there for this election yeah yeah according to the Batovia projection so this is just a projection right but I like Batovia because Batovia is doing what we've been already talking about kind of keeping voters informed around the country on every race of every candidate. Like I said, trying, in my opinion, Batovia is trying to gravitize voters collectively together, say, hey, here's a candidate running. Now look at who they are. This is what they're doing. This is what they stand for. Um, and so Batovia has done a projection uh, with Bill Lee's shenanigans and things he's been doing very foolishly, like that apparently, as we saw in the 2020 election season with Trump and Biden, all of them being the final candidates, we saw a massive turnover in voters showing up to the ballot. And the same thing's been predicted for Tennessee. That was some of the, the last antics out of the administration building with that uh, uh, that friend of his from, from Hillsdale making those uh, inflammatory blasphemy comments about public educators and education. Mm-hmm. Um, they're expecting to see an increase in voter registration in the state of Tennessee because people seem to be very motivated to get this man out of office. Uh, and so that's the projection that they're saying that it may be always almost up to 6.3 million registered voters out of 7 million. So that's a good chunk of it. The problem is we got to get them to the ballot. We got to get them to show up. And so what I'm hoping as being uh, something different, as we know, definitely something different, uh, and being someone who's really from the backgrounds of the issues, because that's something else I think that separates me from the candidates to myself. People are great at selling a dream. Like, man, keep going. I'm going to make your life better. It's going to be safe for you and your communities. We're going to deal with the police now. And, you know, all this stuff. Make sure your kids go to the best school. But the problem with these people is that they don't live like us, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're going to go back to your fancy mansion or your ducked-off luxury suburban community that is not connected or in tie with any of the inner-city urban lifestyle that we live. And so it's great that you say that you're going to do these things. But my question is, where is your true life experiences to these issues? Or more importantly, what work have you done, like the grassroots nonprofit work that connects you directly to the people Mm -hmm. dealing with these issues? And far too often, politicians have no idea what they're talking about because they're outsiders looking in. Well, this time I'm an insider. I'm actually an insider sent outside to everybody. This is what we actually need in here to make this really work on the outside to y'all appearances too. Because until we deal with the internal, what you're doing outside is never going to matter because you're just dumping in unnecessary resources because you have no idea where it goes. So you call yourself or thinking that you're helping, or as my boy Calvin says, charitable work is what you're doing as a politician, but you should have been doing charitable work before you became a politician because that would tell you the real issues that's going on. So as a politician, you could be more effective, more impactful, and you won't have to do charitable work. You'll be doing change work now. You'll really be making changes to things that are wrong because you already know up front what is going on. So to me, that's what also separates me. I am the people I'm talking about. I was homeless for four years. I've been diagnosed with mental illness for the last seven years. Um, I've lived off of my VA disability fixed income. So that means that I can't have and access everything. So I'm in a lower income bracket. So I know about having to make uh, smart financial cost decisions on 
can I buy the milk or do I need to buy this kind of milk because it's a more affordable price and it's still good milk that I can use for my needs in my home. I am aware of those types of decisions that have to be made. So therefore, to me, I am the most appropriate fitted because again, 94% of my state lives in some type of economical crisis. Therefore, mm-hmm. what category do you think I'm in? Am I a 1% or a 94%? I'm a 94%. And most of the candidates and most, and even our incumbent, what background are they though? One mm-hmm. percenters. That's the problem. And so we have to even start changing the narrative. So that's another uh, aspect to put out how we can unite under our various different issues for those that are like, oh, you don't represent me. No, I do. Because like I've already said in my comments, as you brought up, if you are making less than $200,000 a year, then I am your candidate because that's the people I'm talking about representing. I don't care about the over $200,000. They're good. We know they're mm-hmm. good. I'm trying to figure out how to get the 200000 to the ranks of what you're living because like what you brought up earlier, data shows that when people are living healthy, productive lives that are without stress of cost, without stress of necessity, without stress of how we're going to afford or get uh, uh, resources for our healthcare needs and other necessities of human basic life, data shows us that crime goes down with it because when everyone's healthy and the community is thriving, no one's robbing or stealing each other, you have the reduction in gun violence. You have the reduction in crime period robbery. You have reduction in uh, uh, poverty, poverty, because that's what it comes down to. If we reduce poverty, we reduce all these service issues that are created by poverty. Because poverty is the root problem. It's mm-hmm. poverty's driving the issue. If we address poverty, we address healthcare, we address gun violence, we address police brutality, we address uh, a poor allotment spending of our taxpayers' dollars, we get great quality education. God, where do we start? Where do we stop at at this point? If we just address the root, and that's what I really want to do as Governor Tennessee. I want to address poverty with our collective tax dollars, but more importantly, not just address poverty like I know what's going on, but address poverty with the things I do know that we can change immediately with my executive power, and then for those more detailed, in-depth conversations like small business and redefining definition of that, bringing the small business owners to the table to control and direct that conversation as well for us. Well, I'll tell you what, Constance, every you have Kiko Free Thinkers Forum, you have our endorsement, your endorsement for sure. Like we endorse Bye. you and I'll do my best and my power to get your name out there as well. I urge all my friends who were in the streets two summers ago, probably for the first time ever in their life, advocating mm-hmm. for a black man that was killed unjust, in an unjust right. way. I urge right. you guys to take a serious look at Constance Every on the ballot and stop getting caught up in that blue machine bullshit game and yeah. vote for a person based on what they stand for and not what political party they're in. That's my right, whole thing. Right. So um, how can my audience um, get in contact with you if they needed to ask you questions directly or do you have any social media presence? Uh, yeah, so uh, the campaign is the same across the board. Well, there's small changes, but I think you can look them all up. But the campaign name is TN, which is our initial of our state, the number four, Every, my last name, I'm going to spell it for y'all, E-V-E-R-Y, phonetic for my military folks, Echo Victor Echo Romeo Yankee, the number one. That is the title of the entire campaign. Uh, you can find it on Facebook, you can find it on TikTok, you can find it on Twitter, and you can find it on Instagram. That's where our main presence is as far as social media platform. Uh, also, we have a website. So we put in TennesseeForEveryone.com or Tennessee for Everyone in Google. It should have populate you up our website as well. Uh, on our website, you see 
some of the things that me and Kiko talked about, some other things we didn't get to touch on, the environmental aspects and some of my uh, some of my healthcare policies, but it is there, it's all there. Uh, if you want to hit me up, you can click, you go to the website at the bottom, scroll down as a whole link directly to our email that you can uh, access, which is admin at tnforeveryone.com. Or, of course, we got a good old fashioned Gmail. It's Tennessee for everyone at gmail.com. Send all your questions. Uh, since the I'm sorry about my phone like time to go. <laughs> but um, what I want to close out with, and this is definitely a challenge directly to that moderate group, those libs and those dims that we're talking about. Uh, with the Roe versus Wade decision. Now, I want to highlight something. You know, Black people for some time now have been fighting for human rights. We have. When the women's suffrage movement started, Black women were already on ground in the front lines of fighting for human rights because as Black people, we were doing that. Uh, as we know, Black women will go over and join the women's suffrage movement because as we learned from Sojourner Truth's infamous speech, ain't I a woman too? is what we understood. See, I think Black people already understood the assignment of human rights and how if we win, everybody wins. But people don't seem to understand that, some uh, people don't seem to understand that philosophy. Like if the Black mm -hmm. people win, they think somehow us winning is taking something. But as we know, <laughs> Uh, from the era of the of the women's suffrage movement and what was the big thing at that time was actually getting black people voting rights as well. But as we know, black people got voting rights first, but right after it, who got voting rights too? Women. So it was like, mm -hmm. again, we have proven models that when we win, everybody wins. Mm -hmm. And so looking at the role versus way, I want to highlight how the white moderate and liberal white people and Democrats and others who protested and participated in those marches for Black struggle with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and many, many others that we have been calling names of. I'm sick of saying names, to be honest, but the names we called out, you all didn't march because you really believed in Black people should deserve rights. You all, a lot of y'all marched to not look racist. And that's the problem in itself. And to get Trump out. Right. Because racism is a root core problem of the white ethnicity Caucasian identity. Your ancestors birthed it, created it, and to this day, you have been able to benefit from it whenever you feel like it, period. And so when you see a decision like Roe versus Wade come down to what I want to remind those women, the, particularly the women, because white women are out in full-fledged right now, hot water over Roe versus Wade. <laughs> but I want to highlight Brittany Griner, because if this was about women rights, if this was about human rights, if this was about truly saying as American people, the collective us as quote unquote people been trying to say about my choice of saying these are some of my identities I relate to or identify with, mm -hmm. then why the hell is Brittany Grinder still in Russia? That's my challenge to that. Because mm -hmm. if we as women were serious about women rights, about human rights, about black rights, then Brittany Grinder doesn't even happen. And as well as if we're serious about Brittany Grinder, guess what else doesn't happen? Roe versus Wade doesn't happen. Because as our ancestors, Fred Hampton taught us so well, where there is people, there is power. And now what I challenge the people with, whether, like I said, this is not even about me per se running for office, this is about people power. People, you have allowed your power to be diminished because you're easily able to be divided and you become very selfish in issues and concerns. But at the end of the day, as long as you allow one demographic, one person, one identity to suffer from any equitable and unjust and uh, uh, humane, inhumane crimes of humanity, of treatment of human rights, it will always be a threat for your right. 
And so if you are serious, and this is where any and everybody across the board is listening, if you are serious about human rights, if you are serious about Roe versus Wade, if you are serious about Black rights, if you're serious about humans having the unjust due right to the basic necessities of food, clothing, shelter, and uh, healthcare, education, et cetera, then you should be screaming at the top of your lungs to return Brittany Grinder to America. And I challenge Democrats the most with that because it is your president office, it is your Senate that has the House and the Congress right now under your party's control. And yet I've seen more effort for LBGQ and trans women being able to swim in the pool with women than I have for Brittany Grinder, who also identifies as LBGQ, who is a prisoner of war and being used as a political ploy for these two different governments or three, mm -hmm. you count Ukraine, over a war that honestly has nothing to do with her nor with us. So if you're serious, I challenge every last one of you at this point to call for the return of Brittany Grinder. Now that's the activist in me that I can't deny. I have to call for her return. I love that. <laughs> Constance, it's been a pleasure <laughs> having you on. We could probably talk for 20 hours. I know. <laughs> <we can. laughs> but no, um, thank you. Thank but, you so much. But we're going to close it out. Um, I'm going to link all your stuff into Spotify and all my other channels as well. Uh, the Tennessee budget, all your websites, your nonprofits as well. Nice. Uh, thanks for talking with Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum today. I appreciate yes. it. Yes. Thank you so much, too. Thank I you so you much. We keep in touch for sure. Definitely, definitely. And please send our campaign those links and stuff once you get them all set up. We would love to continue to share this conversation. This we we will. It'll probably be out tonight. <laughs> I'll get everything set up and sent out tonight. All right, perfect. Well, thank you, Kiko. Thank hey, no you, Middle Tennessee. I'll see all the Nashville, Davidson County, and other folks real soon. And uh, yes, thank you. This was quite an honor, man. This was dope. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right, peace. <laughs>